Well, this morning we're going to uh, talk, uh, we're going to continue in our book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to talk about finding the answer today. What's the most important key to finding the answer? Knowing what the question is, right? Sometimes we need to understand the question before we find the answer. But we're going to learn today that we're not just going to find an answer. We're going to find the answer. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, please. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles in the pew, of course. And as always, I'll have all the scripture up on the screen as we go along. Now, we've been away from Samuel for a couple weeks because of the Easter season, so a little review of where we are. Remember that the Philistines took the Ark of the Lord and they took it back to their land after they beat the Israelites. Remember that? And then all this stuff happened while it was there. Their statue of, of Dagon went down and then people were inflicted with tumors and it was really nasty. So they sent the ark back to Israel, and the people in Beth Shemesh received the ark, but then a couple of idiots looked inside the ark, which they weren't supposed to do, and a whole bunch of people were killed. And so they asked that the ark be moved out of Beth Shemesh. So that's where we are. So the ark is moved again, and this time it's moved to Kiriath Jerim, which is a city about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, and it's put in trust of the family of Benimadab. And his son, Eleazar, was ordained to be in charge of the ark. So that's where we are in the story, okay? And there's an outline in the bulletin if you want to take some notes today of some things that I may say. And my first thought is this. We have the ark, but look what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says this. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came to get the ark of the Lord, and they took it to the hillside home of Abimadab and ordained Eliezer, his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed that the Lord had abandoned them. Now, as I said, the ark was back and God was with Israel again, right? Yeah, maybe. The people were mourning and upset. Because look what happened when they brought the ark to the battlefield against the Philistines, remember? They were getting their tails whipped. So they said, we'll bring the ark of the covenant. And they bring the ark, and what happens? They got whooped even worse, didn't they? Not only that, the Philistines stole the ark. Not only that, uh, Eli the priest fell dead because he was old and fat. And his sons died too because they were killed when the Philistines took the ark. You're laughing, but that's what it says in Scripture. He was old and fat. You see, the presence of the ark did not guarantee God's protection. The ark had been in Kirith-Jerim for 20 years now. I want you to think about that. The ark has been back in the nation of Israel for 20 years already. 20 years. And the people are mourning after these 20 years because it seemed like the Lord had abandoned them. Now, why did they feel this way? First of all, the ark was not in its rightful place, according to the Israelites, right? Uh, remember, it was in the tabernacle at Shiloh, which is where Samuel's uh, parents took him to be dedicated. Remember, that's where the ark was. So it didn't go back to Shiloh. Also, God had failed to deliver them in battle when they brought the ark to the battlefield. And I'm sure there was still some lingering guilt among the Israelites that the ark had been taken from them by the Philistines but they feel that God had abandoned them. And it's really interesting that when we feel far from God, 
It's really not God who's far away, is it? We'll see that a little more as we continue. And my next idea is this this morning. We need to get serious, okay? Verses 3 and 4 say this. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you're really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth and uh, determine to obey the Lord only. I'm sorry, determine to only obey. Yeah, what I said. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites distorted the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. Okay, this is a cool moment, right? Samuel speaks to the people. Samuel's kind of coming of age here, isn't he? It's 20 years later now. Remember, Eli was the high priest. Now Samuel is the high priest. He tells Israel to repent and he challenges them to prove their loyalty to the Lord how by getting rid of all their foreign gods and their idols hmm now apparently at this time there were many local shrines built around Israel to all these different gods and there were many different gods that they worshiped there uh, many of these were known as what they would say call nature deities these gods that they were uh, had in their nation. There was the God of rain, the God of war, the God of love, the God of fertility, the God of this, the God of that, right? Now, Samuel says you need to get rid of all of that stuff. We read that and we go, well, duh. Of course you need to get rid of that stuff, right? But the interesting thing is for some reason, Israel did not see the conflict here. They did not see the conflict. They were God's chosen people, and they were mourning because God seems to have abandoned them, yet they have all these temples and all these other little things for other gods. You see, here's the problem. They were trusting God in some things, but not in all things, right? They needed God when it came to the big battle, right? So, okay, we need God to help us win so we don't lose. And they would trust God in other things. And when the ark was gone, they were longing for the ark to be returned. But they weren't trusting God in everything. If they were, they wouldn't have a God for the harvest. And they wouldn't have a God for rain. And they wouldn't have a God for fertility and other things. But Samuel says to the people, hey, determine to obey only the Lord. And the word you have, got your Bibles open, underline that word only. It may be a different word there in your Bible, but it means the same thing. Determine to obey only the Lord. That's what Samuel's challenge was to Israel. So let's move on. So Samuel says, let's go on a road trip, right? He says, let's go on a road trip. Let's look what it says in verse 5 and 6. Samuel says, he, it says, Then Samuel told them, Come to Mizpah, all of you. I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered there and in a great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. And they also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. So it was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. I'll explain that in a second. Mizpah was about seven miles north of Jerusalem and Mizpah was a, kind of an interesting place. It was a very common place of assembly for Israel. It was a, a, an important gathering place, and we'll see that more as we continue on in the book of Samuel. It even served as the capital of Judah for a while after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. So it says that Samuel poured water out before the Lord. They would call that libations, pouring out libations. And it was a, a, 
it was considered an act of contrition or an act of penance and recognizing that they had sinned. Pouring themselves out before God was the symbolism. And it says that this was the moment that Samuel became recognized as Israel's judge. Now realize this, it doesn't mean that he was, he was a judge and he was judging the people. That's not what it means. It means something so much more than that. Remember, when we started in the book of Samuel, we talked about this was the age of the judges where uh, God would raise up somebody from one of the tribes of Israel and they would, to help Israel through a crisis. Each judge chosen by God would rescue people from their enemies, whether those enemies were far away or within them. And that judge was looked to for guidance in helping Israel to reestablish justice and to renew their relationship with God and to pursue God. Samuel was now another judge of Israel. If you want to read about all the judges of Israel, you would go to the book of Judges, imagine that. How about that? And a little, a little spoiler alert, Samuel will be the last judge of Israel. But we'll talk about that as we move on in the book of 1 Samuel. So they do this and they're trying to get right with God and what happens? Here come the Philistines, right? Let's look at the next couple verses, verses 7 through 9. It says this, When the Philistine rulers heard that all Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened, and then they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Plead with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered. Hmm. The Israelites were pretty intimidated by the Philistines, weren't they? And for good reason, right? The Philistines kicked their tails twice here, right? And they took the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody's ever taken the Ark of the Covenant. What, do you, well, what the heck is that? Philistines were a strong army. They were a mighty army, and they were a constant problem for Israel many times over. But here's something interesting. Now they're going to go into an encounter with the Philistines again, like they did earlier in, in 1 Samuel. But notice that the people are now looking to Samuel for leadership. The last time they were threatened by the Philistines, what'd they do? They were like, what are we going to do? And they said, I know, we'll bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And they brought out the Ark of the Covenant, and it did nothing. Because we talked about the fact that they brought the Ark, but they forgot the Covenant. But now, they thought, well, we're not going to do that again. That didn't go so well. So they say to Samuel, they, they, they say to Samuel, plead with the Lord our God, to save us from the Philistines. Friends, this is a step in the right direction for Israel, isn't it? Now they're really looking to God, not as a token, but as someone who genuinely saves. You see, the last time they tried to use God, now they're coming humbly before God and asking God to do what they cannot. So, comes to the next idea. This idea, God of thunder, this morning. Am I going too fast today? Okay, good. God of thunder. Let's look at verses 10 through 12, and it says this. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived for battle. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. 
Mm -hmm. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeznaha. He named it Ebenezer, the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. It's really interesting because even before the battle began, the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven. What did that sound like? You know what I think it sounded like? Thunder. Because that's what it says. He kind of spoke with a loud thundering voice. Now, this is really, really cool. And you have to understand this. It says, um, if you go back to verse 4 in this chapter, it says that the Israelites destroyed their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. Now, follow with me on this. Baal and Ashtoreth were two particular gods that Israel was worshipping. Baal is also referred to as Baalim in some translations, okay? Now, this god, Balaam, was believed to be the son of Dagon, okay? Do you remember who Dagon is? He was the deity for the Philistines. So Israel is worshiping this, this Balaam who's believed to be the son of Dagon, okay? Balaam was also called something else. He was called the god of thunder. He was called the god of thunder because it was believed that Balaam was responsible for storms and for rain. Understand this because this is really cool because now God's stepping in going, all right, let me show you. Uh, you, you. You want thunder? Let me give you some real thunder. Let me show you who the real god of thunder is. To me, that is so stinking awesome. God is the God of thunder and everything else, right? Of course. So the Philistines go into a panic and they begin to retreat. And the, Philist and the Philistines, the Israelites pursued them and they slaughtered them. Some suggest that the Philistines were so confused that the area they ran to was a cliff and they had nowhere to go. Whoops. So it's interesting that it says in Scripture that the Israels slaughtered them. We saw that word earlier, didn't we? It was the other way around when the Philistines slaughtered Israel. So now this has happened, and Israel moves into a season of peace. A season of peace. Look what it says starting in verse 13. It says this, So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel for a long, again, for a long time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite towns near Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel, along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days. I'll explain who they are in a minute. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year he traveled around, setting up his court, first at Bethel, then at Gilgal, then at Mizpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of these places. Then he would return to his home at Ramah, and he would hear cases there too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. So this is cool. Israel has gone into a season of peace. They didn't have any more trouble with the Philistines. And Israel was able to reclaim the lands that the Philistines had taken from them. And the Israelites also experienced peace with the Amorites. And you say, well, wait a minute, who are the Amorites? The Amorites were the hill dwellers 
in southern Canaan. They were people who were there when Israel first came to the promised land, and they've kind of had constant animosity with them. They battled with them in the past, and a lot when they first came to the promised land, but there was continued tension between them as the years went on. But now they were at peace with each other. Samuel continued to serve as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. This was a good time for Israel. This was a great time. There were no wars. They had strong leadership in Samuel, and there was a, an overall overwhelming return to God by the entire nation. That's the right combination for prosperity and blessings, is it not? Peace and seeking God, turning your hearts to God, having good, good spiritual leadership. Everything's right for Israel, right? But unfortunately... We'll pick that up next week. Mm. Here's a hint. Israel complains again. Okay? But I want to stop here in our story because there's some important things to learn. And we talked about, at the beginning, I talked about finding the answer. And I want to talk about the only answer. Look again what Samuel said to the people in verses 3 and 4. He said this, If you are really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Determine to obey only the Lord. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. The only solution for Israel was turning to God. That was the only solution. They were trusting God in some things, but not in all things, were they? They, they looked to God when they were in trouble, but, but what about everything else? Remember what we talked about, the state of Israel at this time when Samuel was born. In the book of Judges, it says that Israel's actions at this time are described as this. Everyone did as he saw fit. That is not a description of people who are serving the Lord. This is a great illustration of look, what life looks like with God as opposed to life without God. Israel shows us this over and over again. Once Israel got their act together, they experienced peace, they experienced blessing, they experienced prosperity. And this shouldn't surprise us because what does it Paul say in the book of Romans? He said, if God is for us, who can ever be against us, Right? We need to remember that idea. You see, friends, when Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, they were looking for God to bring them victory. But now, as a result of them surrendering their hearts to the Lord, getting rid of all these false gods, and seeking God only, he not only brought them victory over the Philistines, he brought them peace. He brought them something so much bigger than what Israel was looking for the first time. Do you get it? So what do we learn from this? What do we learn? What do we learn from Israel's mistakes? Because, right, we learn so well from mistakes, and I thank God for Israel because they've made plenty of mistakes that we can learn from. I'd like to point out two things this morning, and you're going to want to write these down because they're not in your notes. Two ideas this morning, and this is the first one. God is not just an emergency service. God is not just an emergency service. God is not there for us only when we are in trouble. Oh, Lord, if you'll get me out of this one, right? Now, remember, it does say in Psalm 46, it says this, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. That is very, very true. God is ready to help. Why? 
because he loves us. But God is not just an emergency service. He's not the one we call on just when we're in trouble. He's not the one we call on just when we have a problem because that's not a relationship, is it? Reading his word, listening to him, following his statutes, these things keep us out of trouble so we don't have to count on him constantly to bail us out of trouble. Think about it for a second. Most of the times when we face trouble, uh, you look at Israel first of all, when they face trouble, it's because they've drifted from God. Every time Israel is crying out to God to rescue them or to protect them, it's because they failed to live according to God's commands. We would remove almost all the problems of this, in this world today if everyone would live with Jesus as their Lord and would live according to God's statutes. We wouldn't have these problems. We wouldn't have these issues. You see, friends, God desires to have a relationship with us. And in order for that to happen, we must be willing to surrender everything in our lives to God. Everything in our lives to God. Which brings me to my second point this morning, and it's this. God deserves the whole pie. Now, you may be wondering, what are you talking about? God deserves the whole pie. Let me explain what I mean. Now, when I was in school, we, uh, in uh, um, health class, we learned about the wellness wheel. Does everybody remember this? Did they still do this in school? No, you guys, yeah, you guys are looking at me going, what are you talking about? You see, when I went to school, all in one room with all the grades, you know, we had the wellness wheel, and we had said, in order to be a well human being, you had to make sure that you had all these parts in your life. All these things, the creative part, the environmental part, the financial part, the emotional, intellectual, physical, social, career part, and the spiritual part. All these things. But there's a problem with this idea, isn't there? Because as a believer, we go, okay, here's our whole life. And Jesus, you get this piece. God, this is for you. Isn't that what Israel was doing? Israel had God in one spot, and then they had Ashtoreth and Balim and all these other things in other spots, right? They weren't surrendering everything. They were to God. Now, when we look at this uh, illustration, you could put anything in these other pie pieces, friends. I mean, let's not be foolish here. Whoops. Go back. Sorry. Let's not be foolish here. We can put other things in here. Uh, career, instead, you could, the financial, uh, okay, money, depending on money. Uh, let's see, uh, social. I want to be popular. I want people to like me. What else could be on here? Uh, political. Yeah, where's political in this day and age, right? Political. Uh, and anything you can put in there that you focus your life on, but Here's the problem with all these things. As believers in Jesus Christ, what's at the center of the pie for us is Jesus himself. And friends, the Lord doesn't get one piece. Samuel said to Israel, if you're really serious about getting right with God, you got to get rid of everything else and be willing to serve only God and to worship only God. God doesn't get one piece, friends. 
because we need to be willing to worship only Him. We cannot worship all these other things in our lives. Now, those things play parts in our lives, but when they start taking the place of God or they start drawing us away from God, that's a problem, friends. That's a huge, huge problem. So what does this really look like if we say, okay, I'm a Christian and Jesus needs to be in everything? It kind of looks like this. Whoops. I, I, I'm, I'm a little, little mixed up in my slides because there was this really, really good quote. Jesus gets it all, right? So how do we still have these other things? Here's this awesome quote that I found, and it says this. Jesus doesn't deserve just one piece of the pie, which is our life. He deserves and is the entire filling. Wow, that's a good quote. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> but here's what it really looks like, friends. If Jesus is the center of our pie of life, Jesus pours out into all of our life, friends. And let me, under, let me explain this. That if you're looking at all these pieces of the pie, Jesus is the filling. How do I look at my creative side, my physical side, my spiritual, and all the other things that we can't read now in light of Jesus Christ? That's how we approach life. And whatever you put in, how do I look at my job, my career, my finances, my wealth in light of Jesus Christ? How do I look at politics in light of Jesus Christ? How do I look at my relationships with others and being popular and wanting to be liked? How do I look at that in light of Jesus Christ? Our God is a jealous God. He wants it all, friends. Jesus is Lord. He gets all the filling. He should be at the core of everything we are and everything we do. And we have to remember that, friends. We cannot lose sight of that because people are watching you. As a Christian, people are watching you. Oh, you're a Christian? You follow Jesus? Well, how does a Christian handle this? How does a Christian handle that? Friends, there's no greater way to communicate the love of Jesus Christ if we allow Jesus to work through us in all the areas of our lives. But we need to be reminded because it doesn't come natural, right? Because we get in the way, don't we? We kind of get in the way and we say, well, Jesus, I don't, need, I don't need your filling in this thing. I don't need your filling in that thing. We hang on to things. We won't let go of things. We become obsessed with things. We become passionate about things that in the end don't, meet, don't amount to a hill of beans. We need to be careful, friends. The world is full of distractions that draw us away from Jesus. We can't allow ourselves to be drawn away from Jesus Christ. He is the filling, friends. Are you with me? The Lord should be at the core of everything we are and everything we do. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our understanding of this. Lord, start with me and teach me to allow you to be a part of everything that I am and everything that I do. I pray that, Lord Jesus, you would be the filling of all the pieces in my life, and that would be evident to everyone that I encounter. We love you, God, and we want to honor you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.